0: This is Health First Talks, where we share information to help the healthcare community meet the daily challenges of medical emergency readiness, patient safety, and compliance.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Health First webinar on COVID 19. Today's webinar is on the hot topics related to COVID 19, and what we hope to present to you would be really some late-breaking news around some of the hot topics, facts, misinfo out there, and and again, some of the late-breaking news that's happening and evolving day by day. With us today, helping serve as panelists on this webinar is Dr. Scott Cohen, a practicing physician at Bassett Healthcare, and Dr. Fiona Collins, an infection prevention specialist and expert. We hope t- that you enjoy this webinar and it is very informative for you and certainly feel free to ask questions along the way. We'll spend the last 10 minutes of the webinar at answering any Q&A questions. Thanks so much for joining and I'll pass it and hand it over to Dr. Fiona Collins. Fiona? Next slide, please. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Grace. Uh, We'd first like to encourage you to submit your questions along the way. And as Grace mentioned, we will answer these uh, during the last segment of the webinar. Next slide. In terms of topics, the areas we're going to address are vaccine research and production, vaccine types, safety of the vaccines, uh, questions and efficacy, the practicalities of the rollout of the vaccines uh, that are currently available, overcoming challenges uh, with the delivery of the vaccines. We'll then take a look at current and future vaccines, uh, a little discussion on which vaccine should I get, and then where do we go from here. And with that, I'm going to hand over to Scott to uh, address the first part of the webinar.
2: Okay, thanks, Fiona. So I think the first thing we'd like to go through here today is really to, in part clear the air regarding clinical trials, but also I think to give folks, you know, a sense of, of a regarding how the clinical trials were conducted, at least in the US, related to the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. I'm a practicing physician, as Grace said, um, you know, I see patients both in the hospital as well as the office, and, and also some administrative roles, including public health. And I hear all the time from people saying, you know, hey. I can't imagine how this went through so quickly. It must have been pushed through with, you know, uh, you know, chewing gum and and duct tape sort of thing, and that really was not the case. Were there barriers removed? Sure. Um, the FDA's schedules normally are are on their time, and I think um, rightfully so. Um, Operation Warp Speed pushed that very quickly to say, you know, we're we're going to meet when we need to. Um, the other things that really helped was money, uh, both. Uh, money from the feds, as well as uh, money from uh, outside sources. Not every company uh, took federal dollars to do this, at least initially. And I think, you know, most importantly, one of the things I think that pushed this really so quickly through is recruitment of patients. And I heard this time and again, I've seen it on, you know, the news with patients who were recruited and they said, you know, listen, I'm stuck at home during this pandemic. There's not a lot I can contribute, and this was really something that came up, you know, many times when we were we were reviewing some of this information. But the people were saying, you know, this is what I feel I can contribute. I'm going to be part of the research study, and to be able to enroll tens of thousands of patients within, you know, very short time in the order of weeks typically, is just unheard of. Normally, these studies take years to enroll enough patients, and that's where the time lag is. So you know, honestly, a lot of it is some systemic things that went very well uh, with the companies as well as the fact that the mRNA messenger RNA um, project has been going on for 10 years. They just inserted, you know, these specific COVID antigens. But the reality is if our fellow Americans didn't volunteer for this, it wouldn't have gone you know nearly as well and as quickly as it could. So the FDA did expedite the review, which normally could have just sat there for a while and they didn't let it sit there. Um, But these were typical, you know, large randomized controlled trials where tens of thousands of people, I think it was 44,000 in approximately in each of the studies. Um, And the initial goal was to say, listen, it has to be at least 50% effective. And you all know, you know, the numbers are in the seventies to nineties in terms of the percent effectiveness, depending on what we're talking about. Um, We also know that these vaccines as, as, you know, we're looking at outcomes in the phase three trials. They were extremely effective. They have a really good safety profile, including just in some recent studies over the past couple of days that came out that showed that the safety profiles of these vaccines are just you know really excellent. Um, they're not anything specific to worry about. Um, so I'm going to go on to the next slide here. So I just wanted to briefly touch on the types of vaccines. There's about 20 vaccine candidates right now in phase three trials. You know, phase one is really just uh, you know, initial uh, studies with with vaccines and drugs. Uh, phase two and three is when when we really start uh, figuring out safety and efficacy. Um, and there's uh, 20 in phase three right now. About 11 vaccines, and I say about because, honestly, this stuff is changing every day. And, and Fiona and I have been meeting, you know, frequently this week and going back and forth on emails. And every day we're writing down, like, new little things that have come up Um, So I kind of put approximately 11, because I suspect there'll be more every day. Um, But right now, there are 79 vaccine candidates total. That means uh, vaccines that could go on to, uh, you know, one that's used clinically. But that's across the world, not in the U.S., of course. The two that we have are these messenger RNA vaccines that promote cells in your arm to produce these COVID proteins, not a virus, but to produce these proteins Um, And then that's what your body gets immune to is these proteins that look similar to the vaccine, to the virus that is. Um, There are these other ones called adenovirus viral vectors where it's like a cold virus that gets used to get into cells and the cells produce this same thing, these spike proteins. There's other viral vectors, there's these protein vaccines. And then there's recombinant vaccines which are kind of made in yeast and things like that. Those are like the the hepatitis uh, B vaccine, uh, you know, extremely common. So I'm gonna go on to show you a, a graph here uh, that uh, Fiona put together that really just shows where we are right now and, and realize that Janssen um, is Johnson & Johnson. It's a division of them. Their emergency use authorization, their EUA is pending. But you can see at the top there, the Pfizer and Moderna are both messenger RNA vaccines. The two differences are you know, fairly, Indistinct. So there's not a huge amount of differences. Yes, the Pfizer is given, you know, three weeks apart instead of four. The one major difference between uh, Pfizer and Moderna is the storage issues. So Pfizer is supposed to be stored at minus 70 degrees Celsius, and most of us in medical offices don't have any freezers that go that cold. Our typical ones are the minus 20s, like Moderna vaccine, but. There's a study that just came out of, I think it was Israel over the past 48 hours that it looks like the Pfizer vaccine might be fine to keep at regular freezer temperatures. Uh, so that data was provided to the FDA over the past couple of days and they'll be evaluating that. So uh, more to come on that. If that's the case, the ability to distribute the Pfizer vaccine um, instead of on dry ice and having to keep it at these massively cold freezers, you know, will be much better. The Janssen vaccine, uh, which is J&J, is a viral vector. That is regular fridge temperature, one vaccine, one shot, which is amazing. Uh, So it's really, that could be a game changer. If we can get that out quickly, I suspect that will change uh, the pace of our vaccination. There are no live or inactivated vaccines in the US at this point. And I, I wanna reiterate, no live vaccines because you cannot get COVID from these vaccines, it is not possible. And again, the safety profiles have been shown uh, to be uh, pretty amazing um, compared to other vaccines, really not any different. Uh, so with that, I'm gonna pass this off to Fiona to talk about the j or Janssen vaccine, which is uh, the next one that's likely to come out.
0: Thank you, Scott. So as you probably know, the uh, phase three clinical trial was completed and submitted uh, with all the data to the FDA for emergency use authorization. It's anticipated that a decision will be made on this by the end of this month, so the end of February. In terms of the results that I'm uh, going to talk about now, these are at 28 days post vaccination. Uh, there was a 72% efficacy against moderate and severe COVID-19 uh, for the part of the trial that was conducted in the United States. They did find reduced efficacy in Latin America and South Africa. So to go into a little more detail on that, in Latin America, the, they found 66% efficacy and in South Africa, 57% efficacy against moderate and severe COVID-19. So why would there be a difference? Well, basically the difference is uh, due to the variants and we will talk a little bit about that later in the presentation. Uh, but unlike the Pfizer and Moderna trials, the, the trial with the Johnson Johnson or Janssen vaccine was conducted in areas where we already had variants in existence. So those variants account for the, the uh, reduction efficacy. So if we focus on the US for now, it was 72% efficacy against moderate and severe COVID-19, and as you can see, it was 85% efficacy against hospitalisation and death. There were no cases of severe disease reported in individuals more than 49 days after vaccination. So that's a really good piece of news. So to put this in uh, two perspectives, first of all, what was was the definition of moderate and what was the definition of severe? So in either case, there had to be laboratory confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection. And in the case of moderate, uh, it it was things like evidence of pneumonia, uh, deep vein thrombosis, shortness of breath, uh, abnormal blood oxygen saturation and abnormal respiratory rate. So those were some of the uh, symptoms that were indicative of moderate COVID-19 as defined in the study. For severe COVID-19, it was obviously much more severe. Um, This was signs consistent with severe systemic illness and it included um, intensive care unit admission, respiratory failure, shock, organ failure or death. It had to be one or more of those in addition to the laboratory confirmation of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, So that is pretty severe, but the good news here is that it is one shot, uh, it's refrigeration, and there were no cases of severe disease reported 49 days post-vaccination. So how does that compare with the mRNA vaccines? Well, we're not really comparing apples to apples. Uh, I'd already mentioned that for the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna, uh, that they were conducted in the absence of all of the variants now present in the UK and uh, South Africa, as well as Latin America. Now, the study was not conducted in the UK, but it was partially conducted in Latin America and in South Africa. The other difference is that the uh, vaccine for Moderna uh, was 94.1% effective against COVID-19 infection, and that covered mild, moderate, and severe COVID-19 infections, so it was all infections. And it was 100% effective against severe COVID-19. The Pfizer one was very similar, it was 95% effective against mild, moderate and severe COVID-19, and 100% effective against severe COVID-19. Again, this was uh, prior to uh, the presence of of the main variants now, or much of the main variants now. So from that perspective as well, it's not apples to apples. So we'll see how it looks going forward uh, with the rise of these variants.
2: So yeah, as far as, you know, we've talked about safety already in this, this uh, lecture. And one of the things that we can really say, and, and it's it's been held up over the past couple of days too, uh, as, a, as I said, a study that came out uh, supporting um, the low rate of side effects in these vaccines is that they rarely have very significant side effects. Yes, do a lot of people have, um, you know, aches and pains and fever and chills. Did I have it with a second one? Absolutely. But those are, you know, mild side effects and any vaccines can do that. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that the shingles vaccine called Shingrix has a fairly high rate of of side effects related to a new adjuvant that they use in it. And I I think these are fairly comparative. Um, So if anyone asks, I would really say it's fairly typical side effects. You know, um, there's very rare events such as allergic reactions as there can be with any vaccine. And I don't know, Fiona, do you want to go through some of the myths that we've uh, kind of debunked in the past related to these?
0: Yes, uh, there there are a few, as we know. Uh, So one of the favorite ones apparently uh, would appear to be that it's anti-fertility and it causes infertility in women. Um, There's absolutely no basis for this. Uh, This was referring to an ingredient called synctiol. It is not present in any of the vaccines and there is absolutely no data supporting that position. So it's perfectly safe from that perspective. It's not anti-placental in any way. Um, as Scott, as you mentioned, it's mainly local reactions that you would expect um, some people to experience with any vaccine. Uh, soreness, swelling, a little swelling, redness around the area uh, where, the inj- where the injection site is, is uh, totally normal and experienced by many people with many vaccines. Um, systemically, when we we looked at this before and currently as well. A few people do have a slight fever, uh, but it is not a serious fever. And uh, we we talked about PEG previously, uh, Scott, in terms of allergies. And we know that there have been a few severe adverse reactions uh, to both vaccines. Um, So it is possible, but it's extremely rare. Um, In terms of the JMJ one uh, that I was just talking about, it also has an excellent safety profile and in fact, there were no anaphylaxis uh, cases reported in the study for either the uh, vaccine subjects or the placebo subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you'd like to mention a couple of the other ones as well, Scott, that we previously looked at.
2: Sure, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I've seen even some in, in, the, uh, in the time frame between when we last looked at this as well. You know, there were some concerns about the vaccine causing blood clots, DVTs, or pulmonary yeah. emboli. does not look like that's the case at all. You know, I hear, I hear this about the flu shot too, but um, obviously the vaccine cannot cause the disease. It's a, you know, it's not a live virus. It's not possible, but I have heard uh, that people are saying, well, you know, the vaccine is likely worse than the disease. That is clearly not true. And honestly, we, you know, we're seeing so much with even people who get mild disease and who have this, you know, syndrome that lasts months and and who knows, could even last Years we, we co- we're calling this COVID long hauler syndrome, and they just have these vague symptoms, fatigue, you know, maybe shortness of breath, some memory changes, and it's not even a well-defined syndrome. We don't even know what it potentially constitutes, um, but I can say the vaccine is safe, effective, and clearly even mild disease in some cases does wind up causing long-term effects. The other one um, that I, I think we talked about last time is the Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, We do not think there's any evidence that Guillain-Barre, which is a progressive demyelinating illness of the spine that causes eventually a paralysis, usually recoverable, but but problematic. Um, But we do not think that these vaccines cause that in any rate over and above that which is in the population. So there were several people who had Guillain-Barre who got these vaccines, but it was no more than would be expected in the population if they had not gotten the vaccines. So we don't think um, you know, that that's really the case. Um, any others, Fiona?
0: Well, I recall we talked about Bell's palsy as well. Oh. Um, and in fact, there, there were a couple of cases of Bell's palsy uh, for the Pfizer vaccine, but it was at the same baseline rate you'd find in the general population. So um, no different. Um, for the Moderna, there were also um, a couple of cases uh, in individuals with predisposing factors and it was, uh, I believe, three in the vaccine group and one in the placebo, but again, cause unknown. Um, So based on um, data up to the current time, there's no evidence to suggest that it causes Bell's palsy either.
2: Absolutely, okay. Well, so, you know, moving on here, I think we wanted to really talk about some of the issues that have been going on in the news about the vaccine. And one of them is dealing with patients who are asymptomatic, meaning, you know, I get the the vaccine, I've had two doses and I happen to be exposed to someone who's positive, I didn't realize it, maybe I let my PPE slack and please, after you've gotten vaccinated, please still wear PPE. That's a message that we're still trying to get out there as well. But I don't know, Fiona, what do you think? Um, What are our thoughts on whether it is protective against asymptomatic transmission?
0: based on everything I've seen they they still don't know for sure um, you would you would think it would be and certainly hope it would be but there isn't definitive data to date
1: mm.
2: yeah and that's unfortunate um, because the, you know one of my biggest fears as a physician you know I take care of people you know from two minutes old to you know 100 years old and that worries me you know I don't want to you know give it to someone just because you know, I got the vaccine, I have an asymptomatic infection and now I can pass it on. So we are still wearing our PPE, you know, now it's probably a little more protecting my patients than it is me. Um, but the reality is we're still doing that and it's still extremely important. Um, you know, the next question we, we wanted to talk about is how long does it work for? And, th- and this actually relates back to a question we got back um, before this uh, webinar And the question was something to the effect of, you know, I had COVID disease and number one, how long should it be until I get the vaccine? And number one is since I had COVID disease a month ago, do I need one vaccine or two? Um, The recommendations are still that you wait 90 days to get your, your vaccine and that you get two doses if it's Moderna or Pfizer, but there's some new data out that suggests that a single dose of the vaccine for someone who's had disease will likely be effective. Um, the recommendations will be changing more than likely, but the current recommendations are to get two doses. So, what I'm telling people who have had the disease uh, within the past 90 days is to really discuss it with your doctor to figure out what is the right uh, thing for you to do. It really depends on a lot of things, including your risk factors, whether you've been on immunosuppressants, how sick you were, you know, those sort of things, and, um, and your risk of re exposure. Um, any other thoughts on that, Fiona?
0: I think really the um, the other aspect, going back to the PPE, is um, if you th- if you think about people who have had their first their first shot and not their second shot, they they do of course already have some level of immunity and in fact a fairly good level of immunity as you as you said, um, but they're not fully immune and even if they are, there's still a risk of transmission to other people. So it's mm-hmm. it's absolutely crucial uh, really not to change your your behaviours during that period at all. And in fact, not afterwards either, until there is um, herd immunity or everyone around you uh, has also received the vaccine and is immune.
2: Right, exactly. And I think one of the other things that we're talking about now is variants, which we'll get into in a minute. But our worry is, you know, people have been reinfected with a variant of the the original COVID vaccine. Be it the Brazilian or South American or South African or the UK or there's there's at least six others out there. We do know that both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine are likely effective against both the UK and the South African um, variants. We don't know yet about Brazil. We suspect though that because the immunity is really at such a high threshold because of the dose of the vaccine and because of the immune response, both you know, the the response of antibodies as well as cellular mediated, immu- mediated immunity, then more than likely, you know, we'll still have at least a significant amount of mu- immunity for those who were vaccinated, even against the Brazilian or other versions. Here's the yeah. but, go ahead, Viona.
0: Yeah, that, that's uh, uh, certainly, uh, to be hoped, and, be- and it is believed, uh, if, you, if you look at the Pfizer and the Moderna, uh, mm-hmm. when I was talking about the j or Janssen uh, Pharmaceuticals one, uh, the, the variants were already there when, while they were doing the trial. So we mm-hmm. don't have that same real-life data uh, for Pfizer or Moderna, but we do already have laboratory testing uh, where they looked at the neutralization antibody effect. Mm-hmm. And they looked at uh, they used genetically engineered versions that included the mutations for the spike proteins for the variants, Mm -hmm. and they found that it was effective uh, for based on laboratory testing for both the uh, UK and the South African versions. Um, Mm -hmm. They they found that the titers were lower, so there was less uh, less of the antibody available to help, or the neutralisation level was lower, so it wasn't quite as effective. Uh, but it was considered that there was still enough margin of safety and that it would still be effective against those particular variants. Mm -hmm. Um, When we look at variants in general, it's not unexpected that SARS-CoV-2 did mutate, it it was expected. Uh, Viruses do do mutate, and in fact this one's mutated less than some other viruses due to an inbuilt uh, ability to avoid replication errors that cause mutations. I think the other the other unfortunate thing, Scott, as we were talking, is the infectivity rate is considered to be higher for all three, and in particular for the Brazil variant.
2: Mm. Yeah, that, that creates a huge problem, which gets back to, I think, something we should discuss, and that is that as quickly as we can vaccinate people uh, for the original wild type, uh, which includes likely immunity against the variants, the less likely we'll have as many people infected, which means the less likely the uh, virus will continue to mutate. So the more people are infected, the more likely it'll, it'll mutate. So it's interesting that actually the vaccines reduce the risk of mutation, further mutations. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the treatments for that. So we have to quickly do that.
0: Yeah, and interesting in the UK, they, they have the AstraZeneca is uh, the one they've been vaccinating currently. Um, And they did extend the period from the first dose to the second dose with exactly that intent of vaccinating as many people at least the first shot as possible uh, within a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, And there there have been a couple of calls in the research that we saw here as well now where the the immunity level was very decent after the first shot. And they've been saying, well, you could maybe delay the second shot for the two shot vaccines. Uh, by two or slightly more weeks to get more shots and more arms more quickly. Mm-hmm. So we'll see where that goes.
2: Yeah, it was interesting. I read one from yesterday where um, the Pfizer vaccine, I think it was Israel, was given um, in a yeah. single dose. It was 85% effective after the first dose within two to four weeks, which was you know, pretty impressive. Um, who knows how quickly it wanes, but as long as you can get the second dose in in, in six to 12 weeks, it makes sense. Um, yeah. One yeah, of the things... Go ahead, Fiona. After you. Okay. Well, one of the things that, you know, I think we need to make sure everybody's aware of is that it's likely we'll need boosters. So Mm -hmm. we'll need likely yearly boosters until this is extinct. But the reality is they'll probably change the antigens that are in the vaccine. We may even need an immediate booster as soon as it's available. Similar to a few years ago when we got the flu shots and then the H1N1 became the predominant type and we had to get that. And you know, I don't see it as much different, but the reality is more than likely we're gonna need yearly boosters for this as well, which will include some different antigens.
0: Yeah, which isn't any different to the flu. We already do that. They have um, different mixes, different strains in the flu vaccine every year based on what's prevalent at the time based on tracking. So it's really, it's really no different. Um, the, the one piece of, or one of the pieces of really good news is that it wouldn't be difficult to, to adjust these MRA in particular, but the other vaccine as well, the j one, uh, would be a little more complex, but all three could be readily adapted. And the companies are already looking at uh, what would be the effect of a booster. And uh, they're already looking at other ways of, in particular j what would happen with a second dose? What about different dosing schedules? They're looking at those. And they are already experimenting with variants in the vaccines. So there's a lot of progress being made in the background on that while the implementation of the mass vaccination is occurring, which we'll talk about in a moment.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But in the meantime, to avoid infection, please again, wear your mask, use your hand sanitizer, that sort of thing. Matter of fact, something came up over the past couple of days. I remember Anthony Fauci was saying something like, you know, wearing two masks. And then for some reason, he didn't put the data out there about that, which was, I think, a mistake. But um, looking back at the data he was referring to, there was a, uh, a study that did, um, it looked at cough particles. So basically it said when someone coughed, what percentage of the particles are caught by one mask? It wasn't as high as you think, but with a cough mask over a procedure mask, you know, mm-hmm. the blue mask that we normally wear, it reduced 92% of cough particles. So you would imagine if both uh, the person who was sick as well as the person who wasn't sick were wearing a mask, it would markedly reduce the amount of particles that could get to um, uh, someone who wasn't sick.
0: Yeah, and that's assuming they're wearing it over their nose and under their chin, not under their chin, over the nose and mouth. Um, I don't know about you, Scott, but on a daily basis, uh, from the car or if I'm on a trail avoiding people, Hmm. the distance, I can see individuals, every single day I see individuals with it under their nose or not even over the mouth.
2: Yeah, I I had a discussion with someone in the store the other day about that, and he persisted to say that his mask was on, even though it was on his chin, Uh, but it was on. (laughs) So we've all had that. Um, There have been some brawls associated with that. I do tell people to be careful. Um, Just try to stay away from these folks. I don't think you're going to convince them, unfortunately. Um, So, okay, well, moving on then, Uh, we're going to talk uh, briefly about vaccine distribution and immunization. More about the delivery of the vaccines, You know, the big thing in the news right now, of course, is the massive storm that was down in the South, still is down in the South with the cold um, that has delayed distribution of vaccines pretty dramatically, not just in the South, um, but all over the place, unfortunately, um, and is really hurting uh, infrastructure right now. Um, but I don't know, Fiona, if you wanna talk about um, who's delivering these vaccines and to whom?
0: Yes, sure. So uh, it's largely medical personnel, which you would expect, as well as pharmacy personnel. Um, so I think we've all seen in different states uh, there are certainly different prioritizations uh, for who gets what first. Uh, but there are also slight differences in who's providing the vaccines. But by and large, it's medical and pharmacy personnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some states, uh, dentists can uh, are allowed to permitted to give the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. Or the COVID-19 vaccine, whichever you uh, want to refer it to us. Um, Nevada actually also permits dental hygienists to provide the vaccine. However, states all also have additional regulations and it could be for instance, three hour training um, prior to being permitted to do so. Um, and state boards will uh, dictate some of those requirements. And in fact, few um, dental professionals Appear actually to be prov- to be administering the vaccine at all. Uh, mm-hmm. Some states do permit it; other states do not.
2: Yeah, and you know, like my state, I'm in New York, and they uh, they are now allowing a, lot of, a fair number of paraprofessionals, um, including EMTs, paramedics, and others, um, including, of course, obviously nurses, dentists, podiatrists, even chiropractors. Um, they are requiring a specific amount of training for those who would not be giving IM injections. And they're also requiring that if it's someone who would not be typically giving vaccines, that there's a licensed provider overseeing them. Yeah. Uh, but if we have not, matter of fact, I got a complaint today from an EMT who's not being allowed to do it. I don't think we're gonna see a lot of that because it's the distribution that's the issue, not getting the shots in arms.
0: Yes, yes. And there, there have been um, situations where they said that lay people can also yeah. uh, provide vaccines and the concern there would be training. Um, not not only in administering the vaccine, but also um, having over ha- having somebody with oversight to look for reactions to be present should there be an adverse reaction. Another aspect is sharps training and uh, relative to OSHA, that's absolutely essential. So there are other layers of um, safety issues to be addressed as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my state is one of them that that allows uh, lay people, but the process is really not there. So if we ever yeah. got to a time where there was a glut of vaccines and we couldn't get vaccines in arms. It wouldn't be difficult to train people, but it would be certainly a process. And I suspect it would make sense just to get all hands on deck with you know nurses and dentists and you know others who normally give um, injections to just go ahead and do it. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So uh, moving on here, um, we were going to talk just briefly about if you have a choice, which vaccine would you get? And I know you you have a... Um, significant opinion on this, right, Fiona?
0: <laughs> I do, maybe I shouldn't, but I do. Um, it's it, to me is a little problematic to, uh, particularly for people who have had to wait to not have any choice. Um, we don't know what the long-term data is going to show for the vaccines. We do have excellent data uh, to date. We know that the two mRNA RNA ones are 94.1 and 95% effective. So that's a lot more effective uh, than one that provides 72%. And who knows what the other ones will provide. They all pass the threshold. Um, But there are differences in them. There's also differences with respect to variant experience. So it it seems a little uh, tough uh, that you do not have a choice when you didn't have a choice when you could get vaccinated. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. I I don't disagree at this point. I'm kind of at the point where I I tell my patients, if you can get a vaccine, get a vaccine. If one comes out that's better in, you know, in a month or two or three, you're going to get a booster anyway. Um, but just try to get it. Most sites have only one vaccine. Um, so, and it's such a tough thing. I just had a friend text me, you know, a few hours ago that, um, he, uh, he was able to get a vaccine for his parents and he was uh, it's in March at our state fairgrounds up in Syracuse but he's like elated that he got an appointment so yeah um,
0: yeah yeah and and I've heard uh, one of the other myths and I'm sure you've heard this one as well is uh, somebody will have read something or other about the Moderna or about the mm -hmm. Pfizer the two currently have say oh well don't get don't get that one because the other one's much better and you hear it both ways around and (laughs) if you look at the actual data they're both really effective there's Nothing really to choose between them, and they both have a good safety profile. So there are a lot of these rumors uh, flying out there as well.
2: Right. Yeah. It, is, it has been very interesting the the myths that are out there and the the Facebook challenges I call them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there are still people out there. We'll get into it in a minute um, regarding you know where we're going from here with vaccines and acceptance and all the rest of it. But you know there are still people out there who believe that COVID is not a thing. Last Wednesday, I had a patient walk in. And his, one of his first words out of his mouth were, you know, hey doc, is this COVID thing real? And um, I'm not sure my response was perfect, but um, he also sees me on the news all the time and, and doing you know, a lot of these webinars and things like that. And there's still this, this myth out there that it might not even be real. So why am I bothering with this vaccine? So there's a lot for us to overcome as a society is what I'm getting at here. Um, and there's a lot for us to do as healthcare professionals to make sure our patients understand the seriousness of, of this disease and the fact that we really have to do as best we can, both in the personal protective equipment realm, as well as vaccination.
0: Yeah, it's truly mind-boggling, mm-hmm. the, the, the myths that are out there.
2: It, it really is. So um, that leads into the vaccine acceptance discussion you know, we talked about all the misinformation out there. Is this, is the vaccine harmful? Is the vaccine effective and safe and all the rest of it? There's even, you know, this thought about herd immunity. People are saying, and even Anthony Fauci keeps, you know, touting these numbers of, wow, somewhere between 70 and 85% immunity will likely give us so-called herd immunity, meaning that others will be protected by the vaccinated herd. Um, We don't know that. Um, It could be lower could be higher, but herd immunity is not immunity. Uh, What that means is that it likely will stop outbreaks or limit them to localized areas, but it will does not mean that you as an immunized individual won't get the disease. And the classic example is measles. And the number of measles outbreaks we've had have been very high. Now granted, the number of people affected hasn't been huge, it's in the dozens to hundreds. That's only because the rest of us are vaccinated. There's your herd immunity. But there's still other people who get sick and die.
0: Yeah, I uh, mean, the other aspect with the herd immunity is it also protects people who truly cannot receive a vaccine. that It's contraindicated medically, mm-hmm. um, and if we if we look at some of the um, anti-vax messaging, it's concerning for all vaccines. But given the impact of this particular disease and the pandemic, it's particularly worrying this time around. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're seeing all of these myths and and people. Uh, who are anti-vaxxers, helping to promote this with the idea of reduce actually reducing the level of immunity in the population. Um, um, it's interesting, the, the uh, discussion has popped up again. Well, should we be uh, mandating it, and some, some areas are, uh, or some settings are in facilities, or should we um, allow uh, a religious a re- religious, uh, still allow a religious exemption or a philosophical exemption, or should we not allow those and only allow a medical exemption? So I, I think we're seeing a lot more discussion right now on what exemptions should and should not be permitted uh, from the public health perspective of protecting the whole population.
2: Yeah, and I found it interesting, the, uh, the US Department of Labor has said that it's okay for workplaces to mandate vaccine. As long as it's a uniform mandate, not you know pieces and parts. Somebody said something to me yesterday about the EEOC as well. Yes. Um, but I, I think it's really now uh, we're really saying that this is extremely important, and you you know we want the workplaces to be safe, and we're just going to have to mandate it. There'll have to be some medical exceptions because there are some people who just can't get it. You know, there are recent transplants or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think it's important. That being said, again, we still need to um, you know, protect ourselves with personal protective equipment. There are some new things out there with quarantines. So New York State no longer requires an active quarantine in someone who's been exposed to, or someone who's been vaccinated who happens to be exposed to a patient who's sick with COVID. That being said, you still have to monitor symptoms and there still is a risk. Um, that being said, that is a large change, and New York doesn't change things like that very quickly. Uh, so that was pretty impressive. Um, I think the last thing we wanted to talk about here is, you know, how do we move forward such that the pandemic is over? And I think we all know it's it's a vaccination rate, but it's also about how you know we uh, use PPE until basically it's it's gone or almost gone. Um, and I don't know, any other thoughts about that?
0: Well, the, the thinking around it is um, obviously to get the vaccine rates up and maintain right. them. Um, but but if, you, if you read all of the research, the, the majority of researchers really do believe it's going to become endemic, uh, just as the cold is endemic uh, with its different viruses, um, as well as the flu. So the, the anticipation is that it will become endemic but also over time with vaccination and more experience that it will become less severe and it will become part of the um, general environmental background, except for a few uh, particularly susceptible individuals. So they they do think it's going to be endemic. Uh, Of course, the next question is, are we ready for the next one? There will be a next one.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's pretty good evidence this did not come out of a Chinese lab. So this is genetic variation in viruses, we're exposed to animals probably more closely than we were crowding you know, yep. airplanes going from continent to continent you know, a million times a day. So the, that's a really good question. Are we ready for the next pandemic? We have decimated the public health service in the US. Um, my hope is that we will bring this back. Um, I had 30 some odd nurses in my public health department when I started in it almost 20 years ago. I'm down to eight, I think. Um, It really is a big deal, and my hope is we can build that up over time.
0: And it's been happening for years. It's not in the last three, four years only. This has been going on a long time, so um, there's just uh, a a real need for more public health, preventive care.
2: Absolutely. Okay, we're going to just uh, go through a couple more myths here. I think we covered some of these already. Um, Yeah, I mean, we already said, you know, you, you really can't stop wearing a mask after you're vaccinated because we don't know whether or not these things are are these vaccines are protective against uh, asymptomatic infection um, I don't know you want to take the next couple of them
0: yes well isn't isn't worth it if it's less than 70 percent effective or less than 60 percent whatever the person is, is individually seeing this myth um, so let's take the isn't worth isn't worth it if it's less than 70 percent effective I would turn that around isn't it worth it to get one if you reduce your risk by 70 percent So you only have a three in 10 chance. It's it's 70%, let's say it's 70% effective. That significantly reduces your risk of disease and it's significantly reducing your risk of severe disease. Um, So I would say it it may not be ideal. It may not be 95 or 100%, but it's still 70%. So to me, it's mind boggling that anyone is going to say they're not going to have a vaccine because it's not 100%. Nothing's perfect. No, not at all. Um, the COVID-19 disease is less dangerous than the vaccine. Um, well, we went over the safety profile. We both talked about the different uh, reports on the safety profiles for the vaccines that are already on the market. Uh, the j one also has an excellent safety profile, um, as do some of the others that are being rolled out around the world. If you look at COVID-19 in the US alone, aside from the long COVID haulers that Scott talked about, and aside from the people who have such severe symptoms, and disease that they end up uh, with their lives, quality of life impacted for the rest of their lives. Aside from that, as of this week, we already had more than half a million deaths in the US. So again, how can anybody say that COVID-19 disease is less dangerous than the vaccine?
2: Absolutely, and I think we covered the other two. So I think at this point we have about uh, 15 minutes left. So we're gonna move on here to some questions since, it looks like we have a fair number. I just pulled up, pulled them up. Um, so the the first one, um, I'll take a, a simple or simpler one, meaning smaller. So when it's time for boosters, will it matter if the booster available is a different brand of vaccine or even a different type completely? What do you think?
0: We don't really know yet. Uh, we do know that for the two mRNA uh, in, in lab studies, they've looked at the antibodies that de- developed and they were almost identical. Uh-huh. Um, so um, <coughs> we don't know. And it's the next year, so it's a, it's a booster. Um, it, will, it will be a different booster anyway every time because it will um, if we're dealing with the variants, it's going to be different strains, the same as it is for the flu. Uh, so they, they will all have adapted.
2: Yeah, my suspicion is the same, based on some initial evidence with mix and match, that it probably won't matter. If anything, it may actually be helpful because you get slightly different antigens, um, but we don't know that yet. Uh, I think more to, more to come on that.
0: I, I don't mind taking the first one. Um, okay, go ahead. So this one is, I've heard people concerned that the lipid nanoparticles in the COVID-19 particles are the same as nanobots little computers that are put there for nefarious reasons, tracking patients, monitoring patients. Um, can you please address this and let people know that this is not the case? Thank you. So I'm not sure from the question whether um, you're talking about the lipid nanoparticles uh, that are in the vaccine. So I'm going to answer it on the basis that it is that. And if it's something else, please uh, resend your question with uh, the alternative. So if we look at the lipid nanoparticles that they are present in the mRNA vaccines, They literally consist of exactly what they they say, they consist of lipids. Uh, One of them contains three and the other one is four or five, but it's a mix of lipids. And all it does is give an envelope that helps present the the vaccine to the human cell, helps it attach and helps get the the mRNA into the human cells. It, it it doesn't have any capacity for artificial intelligence whatsoever. It's relying strictly on the human immune response once it enters the cell. So there aren't there's no possibility to track patients or monitor patients or or do anything else other than promote an immune response. Uh, so it's it's simply another of those myths.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for answering that. I did that better than I would have. Um, Perfect. So the next one, well, I haven't heard anything about this. What about the recent info patients are reading that recommends not having a mammogram for six weeks after the vaccine? I have not heard or read that at all. Um, we can certainly take a peek at it. have you heard anything about that, Fiona?
0: No, that this is the first time I've heard anything, anything like that. And I can't imagine why that would be.
2: Well, I mean, I can, at least in summerbacks, you know, because there is an active immune response. Maybe you get a little lymphadenopathy, including in the axillary nodes, which
0: mm.
2: you know are part of mammogram. So, it,
0: so that would be a dis, that would be a discomfort issue rather than anything right.
2: else. Exactly. I don't know that I would make that recommendation to my patients, um, but if I heard some guidance to um, reflect that from, say, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists or the um, uh, American Academy of Surgeons, I would certainly consider it. But that, that's not something I've heard right now. Okay. Uh, And then the next one, we need the same brand for boosters. We answered that. Um, None of these vaccines contain the infertility ingredient. That that was actually an interesting story. We can get a little more into depth with that since we have a little bit of time here. Uh, There is an ingredient in, I think it's the Pfizer vaccine, that is somewhat analogous to a protein that is found in the uterus, so there was a a Pfizer researcher who left the company and then raised this alarm about the potential for infertility. Um, That has not been shown to be the case in clinical studies, so uh, we think that is uh, 100% a myth at this point.
0: Yep. Okay, next one. If everyone in your workplace. So the next one is if everyone in your workplace has been vaccinated, do you still need to wear masks when in a meeting together? That's an interesting one. Uh, Well, how long ago were you vaccinated and how long is it going to last? It's it's an interesting question. It is.
2: So I I would say, you know, if you have a small group of people and you know, they were all vaccinated, your risk is low. The but is, it does make sense to continue using masks because there's other people in and out, you know, potentially you have asymptomatic uh, carrier that you know gets infected within that group who's been uh, vaccinated. You know, they give it to one of their other friends who's also been vaccinated, they bring it home and give it to yeah. someone who has not been vaccinated. So my, my guidance is still gonna be until we know better please just just wear, yeah. wear a mask. Yep. Yeah. Um, I have, um, I oversee some fire departments that include EMS and they live together 24 to 48 hours. And I tell them, you know, unless you're sleeping or eating six feet apart, please just wear the mask. It's just, and all of us are doing that now. We just don't know. Um, which leads to that last question. If do you wanna take that or you want me?
0: Yep. how soon will we know how long a vaccinated person can be a carrier of the virus? Um, I I, I haven't seen any data that shows uh, that we know anything about it yet, other than they are finding now, um, based on data from Israel, that after full vaccinations occurred, that there is reduced risk of transmission to another person uh, because of reduced viral load. But specifically how long they can be a carrier of the virus, I'm not aware of any data. Are you, Scott? No, I am
2: not. I'm not aware of that, unfortunately. So I'm gonna let you answer the next one because this uh, caller is someone I know who we talked about this earlier.
0: So we're testing weekly in my workplace for COVID. Is it necessary to test after you've been fully vaccinated for both doses? Well, you can have COVID even after vaccination. It's not impossible. If you think about the um, percentages that we looked at, it was 94.195% for the two different mRNA vaccines. So there is still a possibility of having the disease, albeit um, milder. And the j one as well, there's still a possibility of disease or the Anson one, whichever you want to call it. Um, I mean, the other aspects, we, we just talked about the fact that you can still, you can still carry the virus, even if you have been vaccinated.
2: Right. Well, this person is also in law enforcement. So he's, um, you know, he's exposed to a lot of people every day um, who are not wearing masks, not vaccinated. I don't, I don't think I would test people who are vaccinated um, for the first 90 days anyway, when we're fairly sure the vaccine lasts, but that's, a, that's an opinion. I don't know your thoughts on it.
0: I, I don't really have any other opinion other than yours either.
2: Okay. All right. Well, I think we've gotten through all of the questions here. We'll give people a minute just in case there's not another one here. Okay. Well, just so everyone is aware, um, we are about five minutes early. If there's other questions, uh, feel free to to type them in here. We uh, will be taping this. It'll be available on the Health First website as well as uh, the Health First um, uh, YouTube page. Uh, so this will be recorded. If there's anybody who uh, wants to view it afterwards, obviously it'll be uh, free to view. And uh, we uh, certainly thank you all for attending. Any last comments, Fiona?
0: I think the only one I would have is that we we have included the late breaking news. And I think we could pretty much guarantee in another couple of weeks there will be new late breaking news as well.
2: All right. absolutely. Yeah, and the, uh, the slides uh, will be included um, in the, uh, in the YouTube, you can see them right on there. Okay, well, thank you all for attending. We greatly appreciate it and hope you have a great weekend.